0: They're so good, they make us want to sing like I can't believe it Burger
1: King made a grill dog Made with 100% beef. Flame anytime you want
2: This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the Dollar Grill Dog deal and get a classic grill dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last.
0: Welcome to Real GM Radio, I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the Pacific Division off-season in review, season preview episode. I was really happy to have Jack Winner and Seth Partnow. You can read Jack at Die Magazine, he is there now full-time, and you can read Seth at Clipper Blog, Hoop365, and the Hardwood Paroxysm Network, among a lot of other places. And I wanted to have them on because they both have a connection with the area and with the Division. And we start out with the offseason, who got better, who got worse, particular transactions. And then we get into a season preview, ranking the teams, who's going to make the playoffs and everything. It was a really fun conversation. Ran for about an hour, seven minutes, so it's a hearty dialogue. We go on a lot of topics from the Clippers change in ownership to what's going on with the Warriors, owner, with coaching and everything else, and Klay Thompson, Kevin Love. And we hit all the teams we talk in in depth. When you have a little over an hour, you can really do that with only five teams. So it was a pleasure having them on, and I hope you enjoy it, too. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Uh, Thanks for having uh, me, us, the Uh, the group. (laughs) Me, us, the group. Yeah, it's good to be here. I think the last time you and I talked, Danny, just right before the playoffs or the finals, maybe. Yes, it was was the finals, actually, because I remember I predicted uh, Spurs Heat to go seven, and I just had no idea what was going to happen, and obviously that proved visual thinking, but... Uh, You know, all of a sudden we're like six weeks from the start of the season and thank God.
0: Yeah, as much as I wanted to love the FIBA tournament, it just never got that sizzle for me, which was a little bit disappointing. I
2: tried and I I mean, I really, really tried to get into it and I was for a little bit. um, And then kind of the wind was taken out of my sails once Spain lost and it became evident that Team USA was just going to run through the knockout round. But I guess that's kind of how it goes in FIBA play.
0: Okay, so we'll we'll get started, and this is the Pacific Division review preview. And I like to start with the off-season interview. First question is: Who do you think got better, and who do you think got worse in the division?
1: Um, as far as got better, I'm not sure anyone did really. Um, maybe the Warriors, just by virtue of I wasn't a fan of Mark Jackson's, specifically his his kind of offensive scheming, and adding Sean Livingston kind of fills a, a big <clears throat> void there. So the Warriors maybe uh, other than that I think Phoenix possibly got worse. I think Sacramento didn't improve as much as they want, uh they might the Lakers are still kind of a mess and and the Clippers I'm not sure they got better I say th- I don't think they got worse but I don't I, I uh, think that they're they're kind of held steady more or less
2: yeah I kind of agree with Seth here and that there wasn't a team that took one huge step forward or even one huge step back though. I think I'm a little higher uh, on the Warriors this season than you are, Seth, just in comparison to last year. And it's pretty much because of what you said, the coaching switch from Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr. Danny and I have talked about this ad nauseum. People in the Bay Area love to talk about it. Um, Just how stagnant and really underachieving the Warriors were under Mark Jackson. I think they ranked 13th in offensive efficiency last year. And given the talent they have on hand and really how transcendent, an offensive player, Steph Curry is. They should be doing far better than 13th in offensive efficiency. And Kerr has really stressed that he's uh, his system, while some of it will be triangle based. He'll, you know, be mostly about continuity and putting Steph in a lot of pick and rolls and really, really putting the ball in his hands. You know, compared to how stagnant the offense was under Jackson, I think the Warriors are bound to improve there. And then defensively, uh, adding Sean Livingston and even Brandon Rush, who I'm. I'm really high on assuming he's healthy Uh, the Warriors should be just as good as they were last season but in terms of who took a step back Phoenix I I think definitely who knows what's going to go on with Eric Bledsoe Um, I'm of the opinion it it seems obvious now that uh, he'll be in Phoenix this season but the mental aspect that you know all the contract conversations and all that has who knows what's going to happen there and then they lost Channing Fry, which I think is huge too and then just one more thing the Sacramento Kings and Darren Collison, I think we're all, I haven't talked to you guys about this before. I think we're all in agreement there that that's a huge step back from Isaiah Thomas and really just vexing. I have no idea what they were thinking. I mean, they were
1: thinking that Darren Collison is a quote unquote, true point guard, which um, (laughs) I've written a fair few things this summer, just kind of going through almost any way you look at it, That that's just, you know, kind of false. And to the extent that Isaiah Thomas is, is is a more of a shoot first point guard, it's because Isaiah Thomas is is good at shooting and, and that's a good thing. So it's just it's it's a clear downgrade and for the the difference in, in, in the money that Thomas got from Phoenix versus what they're paying Collison, it's it's frankly kind of mystifying.
0: Yeah, agreed completely. I followed Collison a long time because we went to college together, and he's not a pass-first point guard. He never has been. He's benefited a lot from what I call greatness proximity. He's been next to good players, and he's played well in spot minutes, so people think that he's better than he is. But he wasn't even a really a pass-first point guard when he was in college, and it's crazy that he's somehow gotten that reputation and the reputation as a defensive stopper when he was a disaster in the Clippers-Warriors series last year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I think I was on a Clipper blog live with you, Seth, and we talked yeah. about Collison's just awful defensive performance. Yeah, I'm not sure where that's come from. Obviously, he's a very, very good athlete. He's just fast as hell, very quick, um, and he can be disruptive on the ball on occasion. But he's just so small, and he gets lost off the ball far, far too frequently. And, and like you said, Danny, he's he's really not a true point guard at all. So, uh, and for three years and 15 million dollars. You know, I like I said, it's I really don't understand it at all. Uh,
0: There were two other teams that I wanted to talk about a little bit, and the first one is the Clippers because I, while they didn't add starters, I think that the additions of Spencer Hawes and Ekpe Udo and retaining Glenn Davis will really help them because their big man rotation last year just had such a big drop off that having guys there that can capably fill the other minutes is going to probably swing a couple regular season games and maybe a playoff game or two in their favor?
1: Uh, This is a sort of a yes, but for for me, yes, that, that, that is an, you know, having Spencer Haas take those minutes away from whether it's, you know, Ryan Hollins or Byron Mullins or anything like that. Yes, that is an improvement. If you look at kind of how the deals all came together, Here's where the butt comes in. By giving Haas the full mid-level exception, they put themselves in a position to have to make what was, I think, a, a pretty horrific trade, which is basically, you know, a first-rounder and Jared Dudley for the ability to sign a bunch of minimum guys while still paying the guys they cut over the next couple of years. It was. It, it's the kind of thing where one move, while it made sense on its own, led into kind of future... I don't want to say mistakes because from where they were after, you know, signing Hawes and Farmar, uh, right up against the the luxury tax apron, they they maybe had to make some kind of cost-cutting move. But kind of the first move forcing that, a questionable decision-making process, and one of the reasons why, and this is something that that I think we've talked about on on Clipper Blog Live a few times, Jack, is how uh, Doc Rivers, the GM, not always the best friend to Doc Rivers, the coach.
2: Yeah, I'd, uh, I totally agree there. And that's a tough balancing act, uh, you know, for all the, all the guys who occupy that dual role, you know, how do you, how do you measure the future versus the present? And I think, Um, you know, like you said, with the Jared Dudley and first round pick trade, that was tough. That was tough. Obviously you never want to give up a first rounder, but the picks can end up being, you know, mid twenties, late twenties and Jared Dudley, they really got nothing from him last season. He was one of the biggest disappointments in the league for me. But like you said, Danny, getting back to your original point, I do like what they did uh, with Haas and Udo. I'm actually higher on Haas than a lot of people are, you know, who knows whether or not he will turn into, turn into, he will stay the long range. He was really a marksman from Three point range with Cleveland last year. He was, he was efficient, but he was also prolific from three point range, and that really came out of nowhere. Um, so, that'll be if he's able to shoot from three point range and kind of space the floor for Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, um, you know, that'll be something the Clippers really lacked. And then Ekpe Udo, obviously, when DeAndre goes off the floor, they've lacked any semblance of rim protection in the past. Udo is obviously, you know, considering what they signed him for, just a veteran's minimum. He's a, he's a bit player but just that shot-blocking aspect is something they, they really lacked once DeAndre went off the floor, and you know, they won't this season.
1: I'm not as, as high on, on Udo. He's a guy who probably, since he's, he's by all accounts a, 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 a great guy you know with the book club and all, and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> and his, his original high draft slot, he's a guy whose reputation probably outstrips his, his ability. I mean, there's, there's a reason he's, he was a guy who was available for a minimum uh, for, for basically the the entire offseason. So while if he can give, you know, 10 minutes of solid rim protection and and Doc can craft lineups around him that give enough offense, then maybe they'll get away with it. But I'm less convinced that he will be a, a difference maker. And again, you know, in, in a vacuum, a worthwhile gamble uh, – is it a gamble that you're happy about giving up a future first rounder? And just to, if I, if I may back up, you made the point of the, the first rounder where it's going to fall. Uh, the problem wasn't so much that the, it's going to be a massively valuable pick. It's just that was kind of their last asset that they could have right. used. Say mid season, they they get banged up on the wing, and they then they still have you know Dudley's contract and that first rounder to go after you know someone who can, you know, be productive in that spot at a, you know, a a medium range contract instead of now their team is their team and there's nothing, no other moves they can really make. And I'm not sure that for a team that's a a contender like the Clippers that being done in August is or, or early September is necessarily ideal.
0: They also sold incredibly low on Jared Dudley. It's hard to imagine that his stock would have stayed as bad as it was right now. So I understand the urgency with the hard cap. That's something something that I've talked about a lot in various parts of the Internet. But they, they really did that. And the other part of it that was so shocking to me is that they weren't able to do it as a straight-up dump, that they had to take on these salaries in Miroslav and Carlos Delfino, because it seems like the Sixers and Jazz were just sitting there, and they could have just dumped the contract on them if they were willing to give up a first and just do it that way, as opposed to spending this money and be using the stretch provision to tie up a little bit of cap space the next couple of years.
1: I've, I've been told by people in the know, I believe it was um, I was talking with Mark Deeks and, and, and sorry, Mark, if if I have that wrong, but uh, the the Sixers were asking for two firsts for for this deal. So I mean, it maybe maybe it was the, the best they could get, especially considering that the teams could look at the cap sheet and see that you know they can't even invite any non rookies to training camp without making this kind of move. So they kind of the, the Clippers kind of again with the signings of, of Farmer and and Hawes and and Glen Davis kind of put themselves in a position to give any trading partner the leverage. And that's, that's why the, the deal kind of came out the way it did. And you, you touched on something, by the way, that I thought was strange, which is why they decided to stretch uh, Radalitsa. You know, if, if big man depth is a thing, um, performed you know, pretty decently in a, in a tiny sample size for Milwaukee last year. Why does it have to be him or Udo? Why, uh, why, why not both? Why Hito Turkalu instead? I didn't necessarily understand the, the desire to, you know, pay dead money the next five years to, you know, to get to to be able to get in another minimum guy for this year.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And the other team I want to talk about in this section, and we'll move on, is. I was frustrated, though I understood why the Lakers went with all these short-term moves, considering we all know that they're going to probably be terrible this year. Did you understand, you know, they got a first-rounder for Jeremy Lin, so I get that. That's a, that's a decent move, even though it cost them a ton of money. But Boozer and kind of those little small moves that are very short-term.
2: It's the Boozer one that I really don't understand at all. I, actually, I don't want to say I don't understand it, because I do understand it. They want to remain somewhat competitive here in Kobe's twilight just so they aren't winning you know 20 games and they might win 34 instead I'm not sure that Carlos Boozer is the guy that's you know going to get you six or seven wins and you know that's one point and the bigger issue is the Lakers aren't a team that should be you know trying to win 37 games and sniff the playoffs and you know the most competitive conference maybe in league history they should be tanking basically to try and find that elusive superstar but you know, because of where Kobe in, is in his career and how much he means to the franchise, um, you know, they're kind of hamstrung by his cur- current circumstances. And like I said about Boozer specifically, his signing inhibits the growth of Julius Randle. How much is he going to play, you know, now that Carlos Boozer's aboard? It's, it's very strange to me. And it's, it's really a shame because the Lakers had an opportunity this season after missing out on the big name free agents to kind of think ahead. And instead, they just kept thinking in the present. And I think it's going to set them back for a while. As the kids on Twitter uh,
1: like to say, E. your mentioned for being that down the Lakers." But yeah, no, I I, I agree with, with with all that. And you know the, the the weird thing about the Boozer situation is that they have a ton of you know young bigs, especially you know picking up Ed Davis, uh, Ryan Kelly was a was surprisingly non terrible last year, and he's gonna get he's gonna get buried this year, and 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 it's the situation where you know Boozer is while they might have got a, quote, good deal on him, that's not a, because of the, the, the way the, the amnesty stuff works. He's not really an asset for them because they can't trade him. Right. So it's not the kind of thing where they, it, it, it's not a situation where they can, you know, refurbish an old house and then get something for it. Whereas, you know, if they were giving minutes to, you know, an Ed Davis or a, or Ryan Kelly or, or, or something like that, then and, and, and a contender came calling, then maybe they could, you know, turn that, uh, something, someone who wasn't necessarily in their long-term plans into something to build for the future. And they've kind of, you know, eliminated that as an option for themselves because now they're going to be, you know, playing Carlos Boozer 30 minutes a game, which, you know, he's a, he's a productive player and probably, probably underrated actually as, as a player, just because he's got such a bad rap, Mm -hmm. but as I've said, he's not, you know, he's not a guy who's going to drag them to 40 wins on his own. So that was mystifying. Um, I, I like the Lynn pickup for them, but still it's, it's, it's how is, how are the pieces going to fit together and anything resembling, I don't want to say a good team, but anything resembling a team that even makes sense as a, as building toward, toward something. Um, and that's, you know, the, the thing hanging over this whole conversation is of course, the silly extension they gave Kobe, which, you know, prevents anything really meaningful for happening that for them, for the, the, the lifestyle pan of that contract. So, you know, what could they have done, but at the same time, they
2: probably could have done more in terms of setting themselves up for the post Kobe era than they did. Yeah, just one more very puzzling thing I want to mention about the Lakers is that they gave Nick Young a four-year oh, twenty-one million dollar contract. <laughs> for twenty seven, twenty eight twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, Nick Young is gonna make five point seven million dollars. It's a player option. He'll be thirty-three years old. The athleticism and the uh, kind of fluidity and the coordination that makes him a somewhat effective NBA player will certainly be diminishing when he's 33 and making nearly six million dollars a year in 2018. It was baffling. I, I like watching. Well, like I'm using air quotes. I like watching Swaggy P as much as the next guy. But you know, and he's he's fun and you know he's a draw and um, you know he has merit on on a certain team, on a, on a contending team, or he's the seventh or eighth guy and he'll maybe come off the bench for some instant offense, but certainly not at that price tag. And certainly not for these Lakers.
1: I think he has, he has merit for a really bad team too, just in terms of, of entertainment value. Right. Um, but then again, if, you know, as you said, the, those last two years when they're hoping to no longer be really bad, like what's the point? The, the, the per year, figure on the Jordan Hill contract he was at 9.5 is you know that's a little bit of sticker shock but that's a much better contract than 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 Nick Young has certainly because two years and done and okay you overpaid him for two years but there are two years that so what to some extent versus you know Nick Young like as you said you're going to be you know using five million a year of cap space on a guy who you hope isn't in your rotation by that point.
2: Yeah, and they even have a team option on Jordan Hill for that second season, yeah. so he's basically an expiring. I was yeah. I was just as confused by that contract when I saw the initial number two years eighteen, and then I saw it was a team option. That makes far more sense than the Nick Youngs. I'm I'm still confused by it.
0: And the other the other part of the whole thing is that they spent all those money on those guys. And then another guy went from one team in this division to another team and Isaiah Thomas, who would have actually made sense with this team. And the bigger issue that I have with the Lakers is thinking about what they have in terms of assets. So basically who will guys want to play with because they're going to have to bring in new talent, even if they draft well, they're still going to have to bring in other talent and Carlos Boozer is going to be gone. And I don't think guys are particularly keen on playing with him. Jeremy Lin's probably going to be gone. So they added in, and Hill, who knows, but so they added in all these pieces that are hard to move and that aren't going to be there, so you're not selling future players on these are the guys they're going to play with. And that's why I think a guy like Isaiah Thomas would have made a lot of sense for the Lakers, especially because they could have traded him at the price he ended up signing for.
1: I think they're banking on the Lakers being the Lakers. You know, We are the Lakers. We uh everyone wants to play with us. You know, Kevin Love is, is coming and, and, you know, a a middle of last season, you kind of got the little ridiculous jokes of their, you know, their starting lineup for this coming season being like Rajon Rondo, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Love, Carmelo Anthony, and and somebody else. Uh, And, you know, it's a little bit of picking low hanging fruit, having a little fun with over exuberant Laker fan, but still, I think to some extent that sort of confidence that it'll always work out because we're the Lakers underpins some of these moves and maybe with with a bit more competence in the front office of of the Clippers that's not necessarily the case especially you know when as we're getting demonstrated to us kind of year after year that Jim Buss is not Jerry Buss and and that matters so you know the confidence that you know people always want to come and play with us because we we're the Lakers and with all that entails I think that's lessening and if it's not almost gone by now. So, uh, and that, again, that that's their confidence that they, they don't need these guys people want to play with because it's the Lakers people want to play for is, is their pitch. And that's less true than it used to be, I think.
2: Yeah. And as you alluded to Seth, I think a lot of the kind of Lakers losing their luster in the free agent market has to do with, you know, the Clippers ascending and, um, you know, after the Donald Sterling fiasco, all the, all his reprehensible really thoughts and actions here over the last I don't, I don't know how many decades, and there's no reason to rehash that again, but the Clippers are in as good a spot as they've been in quite some time, um, even after the, you know, kind of strange offseason that we just discussed. You know, they're a, certainly a Western Conference contender, and, uh, you know, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin are superstars. Andre Jordan is kind of a—he's he's obviously a very, very good player, but he's also a niche favorite for fans. People love what he does. Um, and they're an exciting team, and as they continue to ascend, it only makes sense that the shine would would kind of wear off on the Lakers, and I think that's what we're seeing when it comes to free agency.
0: And the other factor in this, and this is something we could talk about briefly, is I thought about this, and I might have talked about it with Jack about a year ago, but the idea that I had was that there was this strange situation where none of the major market teams, so meaning New York and L.A., had a combination of good ownership and good front office people. You know, each team had a flaw somewhere, and what the Clippers did by making this move— is they might be the first team to have both. Though we obviously have issues with Doc Rivers, the GM. Their overall front office picture plus ownership now is probably the best of the four New York and LA teams.
1: It's hard hard to argue with that of, of the four. This is I mean, thinking about you know, how what a mess that uh, that Brooklyn's going to be. I mean, they're, <laughs> that No, that's a, that's a that's a really good point. Though at the same time, it's going to take you know a decade of of that kind of differential for it to LA to actually become a Clippers town. I think that's, that's fair to say that the Lakers will be the the first team in LA still, but that is more from a fan perspective than a where do I want to go to play perspective. I mean, do I, if I, do I want to win a championship? Do I want to play with other good players? Do I want to play for, uh, you know, a, a quality organization? Those questions right now are, pointing towards
2: the, the Clippers as, as you know the place to go. Certainly, and it's interesting that we haven't even discussed the hiring of Byron Scott as the, as the coach of the Lakers. I think that's kind of telling that we haven't mentioned that yet just because that just doesn't move the needle one iota in a positive direction. Um, I almost just think he's a placeholder and someone that can just placate Kobe here over the final two years of his career. Um, you know, After some great success in New Orleans um, and New Jersey early, uh, Byron Scott really hasn't done anything good and you know he was he was a confusing hire to me and you know just another strange aspect of the Lakers offseason. It's again it's kind of he's a he's a former
1: Laker so it's, it's trying right. to you know uh, uh you know capture some of that luster that uh of you know the Showtime team which you know that's 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 a fond memory at this point and and doesn't doesn't do much for today's player or fan, and I think it's it's funny because as much uh, as Mike D'Antoni got the blame for everything last year, um, I'm wondering how long it will be into this season before we start to re- people start to you know have have that uh, you know Mike D'Antoni we, at least we were entertaining last year kind hmm. of kind of stuff going on. So that's that I, I was not a, a particular fan of that hire, but as you say, it's a placeholder because who wanted that job? really. It's, it's not a, it's not a job, but that, that lends itself to success right now.
0: Yeah. So we'll move on to, and who you think is going to be the best newcomer to his team in this, if, from this off season.
2: Ooh, that's a good question. You know, cause like we said, there really isn't any huge signings other than I, other than Isaiah Thomas. And, you know, because they're so stacked at point guard, um, you know, who really knows what's going to happen there. So, but I'd have to say him, I'd have to say Isaiah Thomas, because We've seen that Jeff Hornacek certainly isn't afraid to play two point guards. And if Eric Bledsoe's situation is so contentious, you know, that his play suffers on the court or, you know, he becomes a locker room distraction or anything like that, you know, then they'll be relying on him for huge minutes, not just not just big, big, big minutes off the bench. So I really love the Isaiah Thomas um, acquisition for the Suns, especially at the price, four years, $28 million um, is an absolute bargain for a player of his caliber. And he's really just a perfect fit for what they do and how they space the floor and they just go, go, go all the time. Uh they constantly run, pick and roll. Um, he's a great fit there. And I also really like the acquisition of Sean Livingston for the Warriors. You know, he's a guy that kind of not even kind of, he certainly certainly rebuilt his career with Brooklyn last season after that devastating injury from I think two thousand six or two thousand seven. It's so great to see him doing well, but he occupies a certain certain type of player for the Warriors that they lacked last season in a in a secondary ball handler, a guy that can take some pressure off of Steph Curry, you know, in terms of playmaking duties other than Andre Iguodala, um, and that's just huge. He's he's obviously not a floor spacer, but the Warriors have all the flo- all the floor spacing they need with uh, you know Clay and Clay and Steph, and defensively he's he's very very solid. So I really like that signing, but Isaiah Thomas is probably the biggest one. I actually – I think that that
1: Livingston is going to prove to be the more impactful signing, assuming health, of course, just because, as as you said, um, Thomas is is sort of – that was a nice asset acquisition move, but he's kind of duplicative of a lot of what the Suns are already did. So, I mean, he's, his production is probably going to be more along the lines of just kind of replacing what Dragic or Bledsoe would have done in, in those same minutes and opportunities. So while that's a, certainly from a, you know, a a going forward, what do we have to work with standpoint? That was obviously a a huge coup on the floor. I think Livingston for the reasons you mentioned is, is going to be a, probably the, the more impactful signing or acquisition. Um, and, you know, one thing you, you kind of alluded to was, was Livingston's ability to playmake. And, you know, we talked about this a little earlier um, in terms of the Warriors' kind of stagnant offense last year. One of the interesting things, looking through some of the the new data that we've gotten last year, was the Warriors threw the fewest passes per game of any team in the league by a sizable margin. Now, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything just because, you know, there's – you can throw the ball around the perimeter, not do anything, or you can make a really impactful pass. But I think that's, that kind of encapsulates kind of the, the the stagnant nature, the kind of the, uh, the very mid nineties feel of Mark Jackson's offense. And uh, Livingston is a guy who's going to, you know, he's going to move the ball. He's going to draw an extra defender in the post and, and throw a pass. He's going to make the extra pass quickly. And, Mm -hmm. and with the, you know, the overall passing talent on, on that team, Moving the ball more is only a good thing, I think, and, and he kind of fits in well with Kerr's stated desire to
2: to get more ball and player movement. You mentioned Livingston and post ups, and he was actually he was in a fantastic post up player for Brooklyn last year, one of the best in the league, I think the metrics say. But the last thing I want to do is encourage anyone in the in the Warriors <laughs> front office or coaching staff to to go down to go down to the block with a wing. I think we all we all saw what that did for the Warriors last, uh, really in the last two years, with Clay and Andre Iguodala and Harrison Barnes.
0: But the Warriors will have space to do that because they have Kevin Love uh, stretching the floor from the four position. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, Too I soon. was gonna I was good I was gonna make a joke that I want to do this as an alternative history podcast and have my best off season acquisition be Kevin Love, but we can't really do that. So what what I would go with is actually it's a little bit cheating, but I don't think so is to go off of what Seth said and say the biggest acquisition isn't a player, but it's Steve Kerr because he will make a, a bigger difference for what this Warriors team could be than any any addition to any of the other ones. Because I also think that there he'll be a part of this team for a longer period of time because they have the long-term commitment to him and he's chummy with the owner. And that's always a good thing for jobs, for job security.
1: I, I will mildly disagree just because if, Kerr works out the way that, that you know people hope he will. That's true. I don't think that we can really make those kind of pronouncements about a guy who's never coached before um, right. being being Agreed. being such a you know that impactful. It's pretty hard for you know a coach to be a a very positive impact on a team. It's actually pretty hard for a coach to be a, you know if someone is good enough to get hired as an NBA coach. Uh most NBA coaches are kind of right in the middle where their teams perform about how their team is supposed to perform. I mean you've got, you know, your Popovich, your Carlisle and maybe one or two others on one end and then, you know, the, the churn of the, the the worst coaches in the league at the other end. But other than that, most guys are pretty good at some things, not so good at other things, and it all kind of comes out in the wash. And I don't we don't know enough about Kerr to to say that he's gonna be one of those those guys, those those, you know, Popovich, Carlisle, I think Eric Spolster, Stan Van Gundy are the guys, I, the other guys I'd have kind of mm-hmm. in that, that, that top echelon. I don't think we, we, it's just way too early to say, you know, we're talking about former players being coaches. I almost wonder if, uh, if Derek Fisher is going to be uh, a more impactful coach than, than Steve Kerr, but that's a, that's a, a whole other discussion, I think.
2: Certainly. And Kerr, at the very least, has said all the right things about the offense. You know, and like, I, like I mentioned earlier about how they're going to run a lot of pick and roll, really put the ball in Steph's hands, a lot of motion, um, you know, while implementing some triangle aspects. But, you know, the fact that it came out once uh, it became clear the Warriors weren't going to part with Clay and a potential Kevin Love trade, it came out that Kerr and Jerry West were the biggest um, proponents of keeping Clay. That doesn't necessarily speak to very very well to me of his uh of his evaluation and you know and really, you know, what he uh what he thinks this team is capable of. The Warriors, you know, they're a very good team, you know, but they're not in that upper echelon uh group of championship contenders, you know, like the San Antonio Spurs, like the Thunder, perhaps, you know, like the Clippers. Uh, they're on that level below. And if they had Kevin Love, um, you know, perhaps that might be different. But Kerr, for whatever reason, you know, decided Clay uh, they couldn't part with him, and um, you know that's certainly something to think about, um, you know, when assessing how well we think Kerr is going to do in his first season.
0: So that's a great point, and we'll move on to who you think. And we're not going to do this on on who you think is going to be the best rookie, but who you are most excited to see play in the NBA.
2: I was really, really big on Nick Stauskas uh, coming into the draft, just because. He's obviously an incredibly gifted shooter. He's you know one of the 10 or 15 best shooters in the league, I'd say, just right now. But he's very, very underrated as a playmaker. He does some good stuff off the dribble. I think eventually you'll be able to run some pick and roll with him and he'll be able to do some things that you know, a secondary ball handler can really do. And in the draft process, you know, people really don't didn't look at him that way. Think of him as a standstill shooter. but you know he's a good athlete. You know, like I said, he, he can handle the ball, he has some passing knack. Um, he's not long, which is an issue, and I'm kind of concerned about how he will finish in the paint, but I'm excited to see what he does, especially in conjunction or either or uh, with Ben Macklemore, because you know, there's some redundancy there, obviously, but I don't think those two guys necessarily can't play together. I know a lot of people were confused by the Kings selecting uh, Stauskas just after they selected Macklemore the year prior. And seeing how those two guys, you know, kind of how the playing rotation susses out between them and whether or not they share court time, that's something I'm looking forward to, to watching this year.
1: Certainly uh, there's a lot of, there's a fair amount of pressure on Stauskas just uh, in terms of making uh, ownership look good uh, based on um, those draft war room uh, videos that, that, that came out about that. So, I don't know. I, I like Stauskas for all the reasons you said. He's kind of a, a confusing selection nonetheless, also because they had just drafted McLemore. And, you know, the fact that, that he's going to be lucky to be a, a slightly below average defender, let alone a, a an average right. or better defender in the NBA. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see, well, we'll see less of him than we thought we might, but Julius Randle, I was actually... V- very intrigued by Jordan Clarkson in in Los Angeles, and to, before they acquired Nick Young, um, he seemed like a guy who could be one of those second round picks that was hey, this guy, uh, especially you know in a situation where he's playing on a not so good team and would get the, those opportunities. Again, another guy who wonder if if he's going to get the opportunities to justify what was a, a somewhat surprising selection, followed up by a pretty great summer league is T.J. Warren in Phoenix, but they have so many guys that you wonder if he'll get the playing time and to even prove whether his uh his game will actually translate to to the full nba level um he's kind of the uh very much a tweener but whether or not he can be you know a tweener in kind of the to go back a few uh, ways the, the cedric sabalos mold who can figure out ways to score even so or if he's just going to be one of those uh kind of the, the the Derek williams types who isn't big enough to be a four isn't quick enough or a good enough shooter to be a three. So that's a, I guess it's a long-winded way of, of saying that I'm not super jazzed by any of the rookies in this division, I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted T.J. Warren. I, he's my pick as well because I just want to see if it works. I T.J. Warren's a guy that I followed when he was in college, and I really like him, but as you said, I don't know how the game is going to translate. So just as a fan of basketball and NBA basketball, I'm intrigued to see if it can happen because – I like it when unusual skill sets work, because that just makes the league more interesting, and he played well in summer leagues, so there's a possibility there. I also like seeing guys who can fit into roles on good teams. It's not a situation where what we thought was going to happen with Julius Randle, where he's going to get some opportunities on a bad team. Of course, now Julius Randle is getting less opportunities on a bad team, <laughs> but... There aren't many rookies in this. The other guy that I feel bad for, another question of how it will work, is Tyler Ennis. But I don't know that we're going to see much of any Tyler Ennis, especially after they got Isaiah. I mean,
1: they, they drafted Tyler Ennis because they thought that they could you know, extract something from the Raptors to get the, right. the, the, the Canadian kid, um, and, and that, didn't, that didn't work out. Um <laughs> so I think that's going to go down as a probably a miss just because as you said he's now he's the fourth string point guard
2: and you know it's if, if he's getting playing time something has gone very wrong interestingly we haven't even mentioned CJ Wilcox yet I just think that kind of speaks to the underwhelming logjam of wing options that the clippers have um you know they drafted a pretty similar player in Reggie Bullock last year and he barely got off the bench obviously Jared Dudley's gone you know, and Matt Barnes, he's aged obviously, and really didn't have a very good season last year, especially in comparison to his 2012-2013. But um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with CJ Wilcox and Reggie Bullock. I had really high hopes for Bullock last season, and obviously didn't turn out well. And you know, let's hope let's hope it goes different for Wilcox. Though
1: to be fair, he was starting to get in, you know to, to build into the rotation. Then he had a, a pretty bad ankle injury that knocked him out mm-hmm. for for a couple months. So that so to some extent he he kind of you know got buried but then when he had the chance to kind of get into the rotation he did okay for a couple of games and then kind of his his rookie season ended up being lost but i agree with you that's a is a curious pick just because you know there were some other different you know players available at that point where which i thought would have been a a kind of non-duplicative skill sets whether it was you know Kyle Anderson KJ McDaniels uh Mm -hmm. someone in 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 that mold who who were available
2: but they decided to you know draft the same guy they drafted last year basically yeah kj mcdaniel is actually the guy i was just thinking of and then you mentioned him you know he would have offered the clippers something that you know they don't have they don't have an elite athlete on the wing um you know he's a developing shooter and ball handler and you know he's a i think he's already well, it's remiss to say any rookie is going to come in and be a good defender in the NBA, but he certainly has the physical tools to be a good defender in time once he learns scheme and things like that. He just would have been a far better fit for me, and uh, I think that's another mistake by Doc.
1: Uh, Yeah, I agree, because that's, uh, again, the uh, one thing that they're, they're lacking is, other than Matt Barnes, who, as you say, is aging, they lack any kind of person who is a can defend uh, a a bigger wing score. I mean, if they they ended up trying to guard Kevin Durant with Blake Griffin at times last year and that, you know, Blake is going to try hard, but that's, that's, you know, you're just asking your, one of your more dynamic offensive players to get in foul trouble while still getting torched there. And so that's, again, not something they really addressed with any of their, their off season moves, whether it was, you know, re-signing Turkoglu or bringing in Douglas Roberts or, the draft pick, and and so getting a um, even though he's not the tallest, uh, McDaniel's is a guy with you know the wingspan to 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 maybe be a credible defender on on some of, some of those bigger wings for, uh, for for spot minutes at least.
0: Are there any other transactions that you guys think are notable that we haven't talked about?
1: I think we touched on the loss of Channing Fry for Phoenix, and that's going to yeah. prove to be. I think that's going to prove to be pretty big. I think that people are who are expecting Markeith Morris to to step seamlessly into that role are, are kidding themselves a little bit. Part of the reason why Fry was so important and big part of the reason that Gordon Dragic had the season he had last year was that, that high pick and roll combination. And Markeith Morris had a, had a great season last year a bounce back season. Big part of that was he stopped trying to be a quote stretch four. he, you know, he cut his three point rate in half and, and, you know, became more of kind of a LaMarcus Aldridge mid post type player and was very effective at that. Um, And he's not a guy that, that is going to be especially efficient, you know, picking and popping at, at, at 25 feet from the basket. So already he, you've lost a little bit of that from their, uh that what was a really a staple of their offense last year. So, and, and then, uh, you know, you go with that and then that just creates that little bit of extra opening for, for Dragic to use kind of his, you know, his herky jerkiness to get into the lane and, and, and do fun things. And, and you just wonder how that's
2: going to affect Dragic as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Steph. He's a, Fry was a huge loss. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he just had a drastic, a drastic influence on the on the shooting performances of every other of the other four sons on the floor, and it you know it makes sense why, as you said, he stretches he stretches the floor for every, for everyone, really opens up the paint, pulls an extra defender out. You know that's something they'll lack this season, and you know it's really something that you have to overpay to keep or get. And with Ryan McDonough. His dilemma was: Do you pay Channing Frye four years, thirty-two million dollars? Because that's what that's what he eventually signed for in Orlando. They will certainly, certainly miss him. I agree. Is he worth four years and thirty-two million dollars? Uh, let's. I don't think so. So they were. McDonald was kind of put in a tough spot there. Uh, though, like like I've been saying, and like you said, they'll certainly miss Fry.
0: I completely agree on Channing Frye. We've talked. We've touched on it a little bit, but what I think might be the most impactful thing for the scope of the division long-term is just what's happening with Eric Bledsoe. Because there is now a distinct possibility that both Bledsoe and Goran Dragic will be unrestricted free agents next summer. And that completely changes the arc of the Phoenix Suns, because if they lose both of them, and they certainly, it would certainly be a possibility, especially with Bledsoe should he hit unrestricted free agency, I would expect him to be gone, that it changes what they are because – they have other good players, but you need those guys running the offense and kind of being the engine for the team and losing, potentially losing both of them is almost catastrophic.
2: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Goran, um, Druggish said in the past few days, I think that he's going to opt out of his contract next summer and then quickly resign to, uh, you know, to, to get more money. Um, but it's obviously a risk. Anytime any, uh, any player hits free agency and, As you said, especially with what's going on with Bledsoe, losing both of those guys would be absolutely catastrophic to this team. And uh, not only because they're so talented, but they're kind of the fabric of what Jeff Hornacek has instilled in this group. Like I said said earlier, high tempo, um, really spacing the floor, tons of pick and roll. Just attack, attack, attack! Without either of those guys, you know they they really lose that identity. So yeah, that's certainly something something to consider. Though I think it's safe to say that Dragic resigns uh, with Phoenix. And the other the other part of that
1: is a big part of the uh, uh, success Phoenix had last year was collectively all of their players, you know, outperformed expectations. And part of that was there was a certain I don't want to say selflessness, but there was a a pretty strong kind of team ethos there and you wonder understandably if a guy is in in a bitter, you know, contract situation that that chips away at that a little bit. And and uh, if you know, with Bloodso is openly agitating to, you know, be the quote-unquote the man at point guard and and to be paid as such, does that, you know, naturally take away even if there's no friction between, you know, Dragic and Bloodso personally. You just wonder that that almost has to have an effect on, on how they play on the court. And, you know, even though they didn't make the playoffs last year, it's that their level of success might be leading to, you know, that the Pat Riley's disease of more where everyone wants a little bit more, you know, Gerald Green had a, had a, had a great year last year. And now, you know, if he gets, if he has to take a smaller role this year with blood, so healthy and, and so on and so forth, does he chafe under that? You know, it, it, the, 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 more I, you know, we, you know, I guess it, it, it's worked itself out that, that Marquise has kind of been dropped into a starting role, but still, to, are, are, is he going to be happy as the, you know, the fourth option in the starting lineup or, or, is he gonna say? Is he gonna start to feel that, that he wants more shots? Not many of those things have to go the other way for there to be some discord
2: and to, to break down kind of the uh, the united team that they were last year. I love that point, and I love that you mentioned the the diseases more, especially because you know as we've talked about with Drogic and Bledsoe, they're likely free agents next season. Uh, The Morris twins are going to be restricted free agents in the summer. And then Gerald Green is is also going to be an unrestricted free agent. Uh, You know, these guys are in contract years. That stuff matters, you know, especially with, like you said, how harmonious they were last season as kind of Hornacek's first team and a group that kind of came out of nowhere and defied the odds to, you know, nearly make the playoffs. I think they're a definite candidate for aggression as as much as it pains me to say that, because they were so, so fun to watch last year. I'm not, totally sold on them being the team in 2014-15 that they were last season.
0: The other component of that, we talk about the players a lot because that's the easiest way to kind of visualize it, but I think that agents are going to play a factor in that as well, that I think last year it was all these young guys that are years away from free agency, so there wasn't going to be any pressure, but now these guys, not only are they looking contracts in the face, but their agents are, and I could imagine them go the agents going after, going to the GM, going to Hornacek and saying, hey this guy needs to play more and then them being in the players' ears and fueling the disease of more because they know what's on the table
1: and that's not just the guys we talked about i mean alex len you know basically did nothing his rookie season now he's in his second year is, is you know is is his agent you know he's he's now a year away from from you know this from the 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 contract t- the clock starting to tick on him is is his agent or is he Kind of you know I need to I need to get going here a little bit I mean and and but you know Miles Plumley is still there so now Len gets playing time and Miles Plumley doesn't and then suddenly Plumley's agent is a a, or and Plumley himself are are you know miffed about that and so this gets to a kind of a a bigger point that I had a, a problem that I had with their off season is they came into the off season already with too many dudes and they've only added more with you know picking up Isaiah Thomas and. And drafting Ennis and, and, and Warren, and they have more you know guys who can be who probably rightly think they can be productive NBA players than they have kind of rotation slots for those players. And you know you never know how much people what efforts they they, they put forth and what was actually out there in terms of kind of consolidating some of those assets into you know one more big ticket item like you know like a Kevin Love for example, as the, the the primary example. But I think that in some ways they're going to look back at this offseason as a missed opportunity when they could have cashed in on a lot of, you know, as, as mildly distasteful as it is to use the language of assets when, when, when talking about, you know, professionals. But they could have, you know, cashed in and, and uh, at the peak value of some of these guys. And now you know, through some of the things we've talked about, though that value is going to sort of start to eke away as as you know, Gerald Green is maybe has a few more kind of temperamental issues this year or something like that. Uh, PJ Tucker is has a super extreme DUI. And 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 so just the, the number of ways in which kind of this could be a, the, the wheels come off season for them is that's kind of staring us in the face, I think.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent point. And we'll move on to the season preview part of it. And the first challenge here, Anols, uh, to rank the team's. And we'll do it full health. You can bring in health if you want to. It's your choice. But to rank the teams, one to five.
1: Clippers, Warriors, Suns, um, who cares? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, the the Kings and the Lakers are are both going to be bad lotto teams. And whether they win 20 or 35 games, I mean, no outcome in there would surprise me terribly for either team. But, I mean... It's, it's just it's hard to predict at, at this point it, it, that that deals with a lot of stuff like motivation and rotation choices and stuff like that, which um, very difficult to predict at this point. But the top three, I feel like are going to be in the same order as they were last year.
2: Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I have Clippers, Warriors, Suns, and I really just, you know, I was just grasping at things with my eyes closed and I came up with Los Angeles and Sacramento in that order. Um, which is a shame because, you know, if the if the Kings had kept Isaiah Thomas I'd be just a bit higher on them. Um, certainly not as a playoff team or anything close to that, but a team that at least has another talented guy. Uh, you know, no matter irrespective of fit, obviously he's not a he's not a great fit on the team with DeMarcus Cousins and Rudy Gay. Um, but you know, replacing him with Darren Collison, that certainly wasn't the answer as we've discussed ad nauseum now. So I have Clippers, Warriors, Suns, Lakers and then Kings.
1: That just you mentioned that about Isaiah Thomas and something we've soft sold a little bit almost. is They were a 500 team when those three guys started. Maybe not a playoff team, but that's you know in, in the 40 or so games that they that they started together. That's uh, that's the makings of a of a at least solid team. And with their replacing Thomas with Darren Collison is is not that. So I, I agree with you totally that if they had kept Thomas and, and everything else had gone the way it did, then they would definitely be a step up from where the Lakers are.
0: Here's a question for you guys. Is Sacramento's starting backcourt the worst one in the league?
2: Oh. <laughs> Milwaukee? Uh,
0: Milwaukee. I was thinking Philadelphia just because we don't know who their second starter is going to be.
2: I'd, I'd say the presence of Brandon Knight, as underwhelming as he was last season, makes makes Milwaukee's backcourt better than Sacramento's.
0: Point guard Giannis! Point guard Giannis! <laughs>
2: Not point guard Giannis. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a nice experiment,
1: but... He, as a point guard he had a quote unquote point guard, he had a, a negative assist to turnover ratio in summer league in summer league uh this year. So, um, you know, that's you you kind of see what the thought process is, but I don't think that's that his, his game is, is there. I mean, you know, for what Milwaukee's doing this year, maybe trot him out there and he averages four and a half turnovers a game and who cares. And he got he's gotten some valuable lessons and then he settles into a, a nice role as like a Nick Batum type kind of secondary ball handler and playmaker guy as opposed to a point guard, which is
2: probably asking a little too much. I'd say it's certainly asking a little too much, though. It was so fun uh, in Vegas watching him jump tip and then immediately receive the ball and initiate offense. <laughs> That's, that was that was very, very fun, though. Uh, yeah, he's not a point guard. So I, I think the Kings, I really hadn't thought about this at all until you mentioned it, Danny. I think they might have the worst starting backcourt in the league.
0: And when we talk about whether, whatever stat you want to use, if you want to use real plus minus or you know whatever, I also think that they're going to probably do worse than that because defensively, they're, whatever their combination is, presuming it's Stauskas and Collison, they're just going to be abysmal defensively, and the team probably isn't going to be great. So in terms of those kind of stats, I'm guessing that won't help it, especially if they don't have a rim protector behind them, which it looks like they won't.
1: But, hey, they've they've got a new arena coming, though, so, yeah. yeah.
0: They they do, and they have ownership that apparently might eventually be willing to spend, which is a good thing because that's going to be – they're going to need to eventually use their cap space as a bludgeon to get teams, and if they have an owner that's willing to spend up to at least the tax to do that, that'll help Sacramento a lot over the years do what kind of what Utah has done
1: yeah well I mean they, they sort of they were, they noodled around with that this summer where with the, their interest in Josh Smith which that oh. actually would have been a fat no come on now that would have been a fascinating team with somehow a front court of of Rudy Gay Josh Smith and Boogie Cousins um, and
0: Rondo and Rondo, Rondo. yeah okay. and
1: Rondo, that's it. yeah <laughs> tell
2: me that, that tell me you wouldn't watch that team Oh, I, w- I would watch that team brick jumper after jumper after <laughs> jumper. I,
0: I would I, got- I would go up and cover them and probably see if I would be able to somehow bring in some sort of adult beverage as I covered them. <laughs> oh, you, you'd
2: you'd need to you'd need to. Well, it's
1: it. Was, I mean the the, the the terrible jump shot drinking game would would you'd be dead by the end
2: of the first quarter or, yeah we'd just be hammered in four <laughs> minutes
0: <laughs> no you'd have a good shot drinking game it would you'd switch it around
1: oh well then we're not
2: drinking at all I, yeah i think that's
1: that's part of the 12 steps actually <laughs>
0: or maybe you like you have somebody ring a you have somebody ring a bell and you alternate between good shots and bad shots so, so you, so you, or like one quarter is good one quarter is bad so you can just kind of balance it out you have
2: someone ring a cowbell that's what yeah. that's oh. there we go okay yeah.
0: The, the next question is, I think with this division, honestly, in my opinion, it's it's not that hard, but it's how many teams in this division will make the playoffs?
2: Uh, you know, I think it's just the two, the two obvious ones, the Clippers and the Warriors. Um, I've heard some say that the Warriors could be in for a step back, uh, really just given the competitiveness of the Western Conference. And uh, I don't think anyone, you know, any of the three of us see that happening. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's the Clippers and the Warriors almost locked in as top six playoff teams, I'd say. Um,
1: I think that there's a little more of a chance of the Warriors missing the playoffs, but that's mostly uh, not 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 so much Steph, but mostly uh, Bogut's health. It's something that's been certainly up and down over the years, and if he misses a, a chunk of time, that's that's a huge loss for them. And you know, between that and maybe uh, you know a- Anthony Davis becoming the devourer of worlds, um, you could see kind of someone else slipping into the playoffs ahead of them. But yeah, I, the most likely scenario is that the, the, the Clippers and, uh, Warriors are our top two in, in, in this division and, and make the playoffs and, and, and no one else is, I don't think either of us really think Phoenix is a likely playoff team this year.
0: No, no nobody wants to be bold and say all five teams will make the playoffs.
1: Um, this decade.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure this decade. <laughs>
1: I mean, neither. I know that's that's actually a bold a bold statement to say that that before twenty
2: twenty, all five of these teams will have made the playoffs at least once. I'm really not confident in saying that at all. With what we've seen from the Lakers the last two years, I'm really really not at all. So,
0: uh, see, I think the Lakers will make it in this decade, but I'm not uh, the Kings. The Kings could. I'm not going to say that they can't, but they just have they have to do some things right. Oh. And one of those things is not giving Rudy Gay a fat extension next summer.
2: Oh, well, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. So they're, I guess they're not making the playoffs then. And, and like we talked about earlier, the Lakers are just banking on so much and, you know, the allure and mystique of, you know, purple and gold to perhaps lure Russell Westbrook or something in 2017. And if that doesn't happen, what are they What are they going to do? Are they ever going to bottom out and try for a high lottery pick? This would have been the year and they didn't do it. Well, they
1: probably, you know, thought that they would get the old frozen envelope trick that <laughs> uh, the, the, the way back in the the, the you know nba lore that the, the, fr- the frozen patrick ewing lottery pick that's which, which would never happen in this day and age which would be amazing if it happened in this day and age but anyway
0: you mean like a, a major market have ending up with the number one pick who happened to be from that same major market and just made the final four <laughs> <laughs> sadly he got hurt after he won mvp but still
1: yeah Uh, and, but hey, he, he did, he sparkled in his rehab assignment this summer, his rehab assignment in the world cup, which, yeah, let's not talk about that. Pretend it never happened and get to real basketball again, please quickly.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the last, the last question that I want to go through though, obviously we can go on to other topics if you want is what player do you think will, will break out? So meaning they reach another level of either performance, fame, or both. You can choose whatever you want in terms of that. Huh?
1: uh sprung that one on me a little bit. Um, I think in terms of fame, it's possibly between Dragic and DeAndre Jordan this year. As far as um, another level as a player, that's an excellent question. And I'm not really sure who I see taking a leap forward just a, a, in terms of on court. I mean, I think that the, the obvious candidate is Clay Thompson, but I am yep. not a believer. So I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> he's certainly the guy who has the most pressure on him this year, given that, you know, you don't trade him for Kevin Love, but I, I, um, you know, I, I, I see him as a nice functional uh, role piece as opposed to an actual star. So I think that, you know, Dragic's greatness is going to, you know, be more realized this year and DeAndre is going to get some, some, you know, all-star buzz, whether it's deserved or not, if the Clippers um, come out of the gate. Really strong this year. I mean, an improving defensive player, rebounding monster. Uh, let's not talk about the free throws, but also just a,
2: a guy with a, an immense personality who could probably use a little more exposure for that. Yeah, I think there. I think there's certainly a chance DeAndre uh, makes an All Star team this year. I, I actually kind of already think of him as someone that has broken out in terms of notoriety and fame, uh, and guy that came to mind for me, um, though I'm not, you know, I'm not either. I think it'll really, de- his season will really depend on what Kerr does with the offense. And if he's really intent on putting the ball in Steph's hands, as much as he says, and kind of limiting Thompson's influence as a, uh, you know, as a ball handler, an isolation scorer unlike what Mark Jackson did then uh, that'll be a big boon for him we'll have to see there though i'm i'm just from a warriors perspective specifically i'm really looking forward to see what Harrison Barnes does this year after a really disappointing sophomore campaign and he his role with the warriors actually kind of goes back to what i said about clays will he be a kind of a spot up shooter and opportunistic scorer or will he be you know the kind of post fulcrum and strange herky jerky Iso- ineffective isolation score that Mark Jackson tried to make him be. Um, I think he's going to be the former undercur and if so, I think you know he could really begin to realize his potential that we thought he had after his rookie year as kind of a young two- way wing that has a chance to be a very, very solid contributor on a good team. you know not necessarily a star that you know, some people in the Bay Area were talking about after during and after Barnes rookie year. He's the next Paul Pierce. That was really simmer down. <laughs> and
0: that was
2: just, just ridiculous. I literally see no comparison there whatsoever. But Barnes certainly has the talent to be a solid two-way piece for a very good team, and I want to see that this year.
0: You guys had, had really good choices. I'm really happy that neither of mine got taken. Uh, I think this is the year that DeMarcus Cousins makes an all-star game. Uh, I think that he he's at that level, and I think that a little bit of the stink that was on him in terms of voting and all that might be a little bit cleaned up by, by FIBA. And then the other guy who I think was really underappreciated last year and was the fourth best player on the Warriors behind Curry, Iguodala, and Bogut is Draymond Green. I, I think that there's a very meaningful chance that if Kerr is, more, is as powerful as I think he's going to be and that he can say David Lee needs to sit, that Draymond Green is starting at power forward in the playoffs for the Warriors this year. I think that's the logical evolution of this team. I think that he makes sense for that spot since they didn't get Kevin Love. And that would obviously, especially if they could win a playoff series, which I'm not saying they're going to do, but they could, that would be a huge step to be that guy and to basically break the hashtag full squad without breaking up that group.
2: Draymond Green is arguably my favorite player in the league. Uh, I think we've we've talked about him a lot, Danny. Uh, and that's a and that's a great point. Um, I, I hope that happens. The Warriors are obviously best when they spread the floor and are able to, you know, really, really use their speed and versatility on defense to kind of wreak havoc on that end. And that's those are two attributes that David Lee does not offer. And they are two attributes that uh, Draymond Green really can, especially if he kind of hones his, his three point shot this year. But I love Draymond. I'm hoping, hoping you're right about that.
1: I am too. two am a Draymond Green fan. I'm just wondering if, in terms of you're talking about breaking out, he's never a guy who's gonna put up kind of the the quote unquote numbers that, that right. really right. lends itself to that. Unless he becomes like uh, the, the the new generation kind of Shane Battier, no stats all star, which you know it's a you know not a ridiculous comparison actually, but you know that was a little bit. Of, of of lightning in a bottle and, and Michael Lewis writing about it, which, you know, never hurts. I, I, that, I, I don't see that exact confluence of factors happening again.
0: There are enough writers in the Bay Area, though obviously none of Michael Lewis's stature, that I would not be surprised in the slightest if one of them wrote a similar piece about Draymond at some point this year if he actually gets the minutes. <laughs> and I'm not going to name names, but I know them because I cover the team. <laughs> but I think it's going to happen. I wrote a piece last year about how he should be starting, and that's that's kind of where the level yeah, is. Yeah,
1: you and everyone else, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true. I like to, Yeah, I'm not I'm not in original. Yeah, no,
1: player. I'm not I mean not, you know, not to, it's not a knock on you. It's just it,
0: No, you know, <laughs>
1: that's uh that's kind of analytics 101 is Draymond Green is much better at basketball than Harrison Barnes.
2: That was a, well, that, that no, was obvious in their rookie years too. Yeah. Yeah. This character.
1: I feel, okay, I, I I feel the need to stand up for David Lee a little bit. I think that that the fact that he gets paid too much money is it's true, but it, it's sort of a little bit, you know, kind of like Rudy Gay. He's actually a pretty good player. And, you know, there are things that he does on the floor, and I think you missed him, even though, you know, some, some things happened. I think you guys missed him very badly against San Antonio uh, two years ago, for example. And, and part of the reason I think that he's going to have a, a nice season with Kerr in charge because he's a great passer. Like, I Very think good. I, I legitimately yeah. think he's a better passer than Kevin Love. And, you know, if, if you, your team that is doing more movement then that, you know, his ability to kind of catch the ball in the mid post area on the move and make a play, he's going to have a really nice season in that role. Yeah, he can't play defense, but, you know, he, he, with, with the offense they should be putting up and the fact that they're already pretty good defensively, it'll be yeah. fine.
0: If you can put him in the right spaces, because the other problem is that you need a rim protector next to him, and very few rim protectors can stretch the floor. Yeah. So if, he's, if you're going to let him, like Mark Jackson did, if you're going to let him clog the lane because he's comfortable there, then that's not a good thing. But if you have him a little bit further out and tell him basically do the same thing, he'll be fine, and he'll do that. He's a good team player. He's a nice guy, all that kind of stuff. So, but you just need to, you need to get him in the right place and then he'll play from there and then then that won't clog it up as much. He, I mean, he, yeah.
1: honestly, if they used him similar to how the Clippers use Griffin a lot in, in their kind of their, not their half-court offense, but their secondary break offense, which is Blake will set a set a pick and roll, at you know, kind of one elbow and nothing will happen. They'll swing to the other side. Blake will run over to the other elbow, set a pick and roll and it'll do that three or four times a possession. And that's really an ideal way to use Lee because then either he catches the, like he's not, you know, posting up and taking up space, but when he catches the ball, he's catching it on the move at the foul line. And from there he can, you know, his lack of really deep shooting range isn't that much of a problem, but he can make a play at the rim or make the right pass out of that a lot. And I think that
2: would be a, a really, you know, clever, excellent use of him, especially if you can, you know, put shooters in either corner. Well, yeah, and Kerr has, you know, Kerr has kind of alluded to the fact that he's going going to do things like that with Lee, basically by just saying that, you know, this is the way the offense is going to go, and I'm extremely high on David Lee. Um, you know, you'd think the next step is, you know, utilizing him that way. Though one of the problems last year was that his jumper just was broken all of a sudden, you know, from 18 feet and in. Uh, after a really good season in 2013, I think the numbers are far better then, so— We'll see uh, if he shoots a little better, hopefully, this year.
0: One more question I wanted to ask Seth, and obviously, Jack, you can chime in, is I'm working on a piece now on five-man units and just teams that don't play, and my question is, am I crazy to think that Doc should give some meaningful minutes to just try out Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and then both of J.J. Redick and Jamal Crawford?
1: (sighs) That lineup is such a mess defensively is, 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 is the problem. And Jamal uh, Crawford's kind of best use is, um, well, we can't run it. We can't really run an offense with Chris Paul on the, off the floor. So just throw the ball to Jamal and, and whatever happens, happens. Uh, and maybe tonight's one of the nights where he's going to go crazy. I think I'm, I'm much more down on Jamal Crawford as having an actual impact than many. So I don't know. I, I would very much like to see that lineup. You know, in lineups that involve more J.J. Redick, especially in the fourth quarter, is something that I think the Clippers should take more advantage of this year. With Jamal Crawford as the small forward, I'm less enthused about. Though, if the only other option is Matt Barnes, because neither Reggie Bullock or C.J. Wilcox or Chris Douglas-Roberts are ready or able, then it might that might end up having to happen anyway.
2: So I guess dancing around your question, I'm I'm not wild about that that lineup. Um, and you're, as as you said, Danny Seth, you're more qualified to talk about that at length than I am. But just something to consider, uh, just big picture with that with that five man unit, is that the Clippers have never had trouble scoring. You know, they were the best offense in the league last year. And obviously, if you're going to go with a perimeter triumvirate of you know Chris Paul, Jamal Crawford, and JJ Redick, you're doing it for, you're doing it for offense. And you know, a team with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin just doesn't have trouble scoring. Certainly, certainly intriguing, and it'd be fun to watch. See if it can be effective at all, though. I'm uh, I'm not confident it would be. And
1: again, I think that the the, the bigger problem kind of down the stretch in games, which I, I maybe I'm I'm transforming that that question into not just more minutes, but kind of as a closing lineup. I think one of my bigger problems with with Doc's coaching towards the end of last year was kind of. The decision that the closing lineup involved uh, Paul and Darren Collison backcourt, and I didn't love that um, for all the bad the reasons we kind of talked about with Darren Collison earlier. And I would I would like to see a kind of a a, a more balanced lineup because again, as as Jack said, scoring with that lineup even in late game situations is never going to be a problem. So getting a little bit extra defense to be able to get those stops in late game situations is is um, would be preferable to my mind.
0: Okay. Any other, any other topics you guys want to impart with the listeners about the Pacific division?
1: We touched on a little bit, but just how, how lucky the NBA got that the, uh, the the Sterling situation wrapped up when it did. And, and it was not still, even though legally it's still ongoing in terms of control of the team, it was not still ongoing when the uh, uh, Atlanta Hawks now, maybe Cleveland Cavaliers, involved scandals broke um that's just a you know as bad as that situation is going to be you can only imagine how much worse it would be if they were in the midst of a fight to to a- actively oust sterling
0: yeah we, we know how it can be bad for a league to be dealing with three or four <laughs> incidences incidents of the same type at the same time
1: yeah um, welcome to the league adam oh. <laughs>
0: But but yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And also the the long term ramifications of potentially obviously we don't know. Just like we don't know how Steve Kerr is going to be as a coach, we don't know how Steve Ballmer will be as an owner. But the possibility of having a stable, non terrible owner in a in a marquee area is a huge thing for the league. And the NBA has done a that's actually one of the biggest problems they've had is that they haven't really made that happen anywhere. And getting rid of sterling was is a huge benefit thing that should have happened 20 years ago and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a major benefit for the league and the fact that it's not even going to stay in their family at all it's going to go to somebody who actively wants to make the team the best it can be is massive for the league in terms of revenue let's say 10 years from now
1: Yeah, that's hard to argue. And again, you know, it's not exactly a high bar that Balmer has to clear to be a better owner on any number uh, in any number of of levels. I mean, he certainly if you've read anything about him or seen anything about him, he certainly has a great passion for the team. The question is whether, like so many newer owners, that passion kind of transforms into maybe being more hands on than is uh, really warranted with respect to his kind of his you know, basketball expertise and acumen, that remains to be seen, though, even with a little bit of, I guess, quote, unquote, meddling would still be a uh, would, would still be better than uh, than, than Sterling, who wasn't averse to to certain kinds of meddling on his own in terms of, you know, getting involved with nixing various deals for financial reasons or, or what have you.
0: Thank you guys so much for taking the time.
1: Yeah, guys. Hey, thanks. thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again to both Jack and Seth for coming on. You can read Jack Winter in Dime Magazine or DimeMag.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at ArmstrongWinter. Winter. That's A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G W-I-N-T-E-R And you can read Seth at Hoop365, Clipper Blog, and the Hardwood Proxes and Basketball Network. You can follow him on Twitter at S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W It was a pleasure having them on. Around the same time, I'm also going to do another encapsulation this time of the Atlantic Division so go from one coast to the other coast and very excited with that that might be out by the time you listen to this uh, so I encourage you to go that way and if you've already listened to that one thank you so much as I always say I really appreciate any insight that you can provide whether positive negative whatever it makes the show better you can Email me at daniel.laroux at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at daniellaroux, that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. So thank you so much for listening, take care, and make it a great day.